I decided a long time ago, I can't change racism. I can't fix all the stuff that came before me. But my personal commitment is that freedom will dwell wherever I go. So if I'm in a space and there's some oppression that's taking place in my presence, I can't be a part of that. I can't be with it. So I would say, what are your own obligations? What are you obligated to? And it's not about what you want to do or don't want to do. When those obligations are breached, then there's a duty. There's a duty to be done. Hi, this is Jeff Bastian, and you're listening to Ignited with Meaning. The opening words you just heard were from today's guest, Brandon Lee. Brandon, along with his life, Hoon, lead workshops that are designed to build trust between law enforcement and the communities they serve. Let's face it, the relationship between cops and civilians is often pretty tense, and for some, even dangerous. Brandon knows that as well as anyone. As a young black man growing up in Oakland, he experienced a lot of racial profiling from the police. This led to a journey to correct the injustices he experienced, and today he's transformed a hurtful past into a mission that gives him purpose and also makes a real difference. This interview was a real learning experience for me. As a white man, even though I'm aware that police misconduct happens, It's honestly not a risk I ever think about when I step into my car, for example. I was often shocked by Brandon's stories and the way they brought a very different reality to life for me. I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview with you. But before we get going, I wanted to put in a quick plug for a short workbook I'm putting together on purposeful parenting. After reading dozens of articles and books by experts about the impact of purpose on youth development, and even interviewing some of those same experts, I've still felt like there was a gap between the wisdom and research out there and how to make it actionable for me and my family. So I've experimented with a bunch of ways to adjust my parenting approach, and I'm now crafting this book to help you rapidly get a more concrete understanding of your family purpose and create habits to align your life with it. If you want to be the first to hear about it, go to my website at ignitedwithmeaning.com and sign up for my newsletter. I'll be sure that you're the first to hear about my book and get a chance to make your parenting more purposeful. So with that quick plug out of the way, let's get back to my interview with Brandon Lee. So here I am today with Brandon Lee. Uh, Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Uh, In just a couple sentences, can you introduce yourself? My name is Brandon Lee. Originally, I'm from Oakland, California. And most importantly, I have a wife and three kids, a son who was six and twin daughters. So um, I'm wondering if you can take me back to when you were growing up in Oakland. Say you're six or seven years old, playing with your friends in Oakland, a cop car rolls by. What does that do to you, if anything, at that age? So at that time, I didn't have any direct concern regarding law enforcement. But what I did have was a keen awareness we're talking about the 80s during this time period, what we refer to as, in generally speaking, as the crack era. This is when uh, a lot of drugs uh, were in our community. But I also came from a level of privilege and access. So I was privileged. I had a great upbringing. I attended private school, um, had a loving mother, father, and I was the only child. So what that meant is my uncles, my father, my grandparents, we grew up with stories 
regarding their experiences. The origins of my family arriving in California began in East Texas. My grandfather graduated from college, Prairie View A&M University, a historically black college in Texas, and he owned a tailoring business. And so we were told that he created um, the best suits and hid what men didn't want to show and accentuated what they did want to show. And so he was a successful tailor. And somewhere in rural Texas, he was pulled over. He's got a brand new car, 1949 cherry red Buick convertible. They know who he is. He's in rural Texas. He's doing the math. And this is probably not going to end well for him. And when they approached the car, either my grandfather either had a weapon of his own or reached over and grabbed theirs out of the holster. I'm not sure, but he actually shot those police officers. He actually had to defend himself in order to get out of that circumstance. And the story was told that by nightfall, there was an uncle or someone who was happened to be headed to California. And he hopped in the ride and the way granddad puts it is he doesn't remember stopping to get gas. So that's how we arrived, at least through my grandfather, how my family got to California. So these stories were around yeah, uh, regarding their experiences. And so we knew to be, even at a young age, seven or eight years old, when my father was driving, my job was to pay attention and look out for the police. In our world, it was normal. So I didn't even notice that it was something out of the ordinary. One of the things that just blows my mind, you know, is that my level of encounters with Law enforcement is, you know, basically dropped to zero since I was a teenager driving recklessly. Um, and when I got pulled over as a teenager, worst case scenario, I'm going to get a ticket. And you would get to go home. That's right. Right. And we don't have that luxury. My first run in was when I was 14. And so as I'm 14, I'm probably looking a little bit older. I'm in sports now, I'm getting some muscles, right? And so I always share with parents that. Your child's experience, if they're a child of color, as they start to get close to transitioning into manhood, their experiences and the way folks respond to them may begin to shift. And so I wasn't aware of all this that I'm talking about, but I was visiting a cousin who was living in West Oakland. I'm from East Oakland. Oakland is a small place, but it's also one of those places uh, where um, you stick to where you are in a sense. I was in West Oakland to see my cousin. That was the only reason I'm there. So outside of him, folks don't know me, don't recognize me. And certainly law enforcement would think someone like me probably looked out of, pla- out of place. They didn't hadn't seen me before. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to meet my cousin. I'm walking across this open parking lot. Three officers come racing in, mm-hmm. screeching tires, three cars, one after another, People jumping out, guns drawn on me. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. Now, freeze. Get on the ground. You're just walking across the parking lot. Just walking across the parking lot. I'm 14. I, mean, I just started high school. Yeah. So, you know, I immediately was in fear of my life staring down pistols, right? I'm from Oakland, but I live on the hill in Oakland. I attend private school in Oakland. Just because I'm from Oakland doesn't mean that I'm somehow used to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was probably my first direct encounter, and it was one that I will never forget. I was detained, handcuffed. Like detained in a cop car? Uh, it would rotate, so I would be in a cop car, then they'd pull me out, and then they would ask me questions, me giving answers, not being believed, them spinning the truth. And then finally, word hadn't made it around. I hadn't made it to my destination. And so my 
cousin and his friends from that neighborhood came to where I was and discovered where I was. And it was because they did and how they did that encouraged these officers to let me go. So one of the things that just strikes me about this, like, is it because you didn't show up, was there an immediate assumption or fear that police would have detained you? The way that we viewed police, and again, this is the era of the battering ram. If you look up the Oakland Riders scandal, you know, folks, things getting planted on us. I and mean, there was just a lot of illegal activity that we had to endure. Our relationship with law enforcement was this this is just another gang or turf that we have to be concerned about to get to and from where we're going. There wasn't really a differentiation between, you know, is it these group of guys that got Brandon or is it the police? So when I didn't arrive, the police is definitely just one of the things that could have occurred. When I came home that evening, it was late at night. It was probably after midnight. I'm not sure. But my mom stopped everything, put on a suit, a suit. Mm -hmm. And we went down to the police department immediately. Mm. So that response is what I, okay, so when these things happen, then we are supposed to, and so I literally got to see through generations how we stand up to this kind of stuff. And of course, the officers were supported. So that was my first experience of not only being racially profiled, but then having the quote unquote system even further that trauma by not even acknowledging what had occurred to me and even supporting the officers who had done it to me. You know, on the flip side of the coin, the same police department, I have folks who were mentors of mine growing up as a kid, folks who were friends of my family who are sergeants and who became officers later on. And uh, I knew them from the community. So there were positive um, engagements. However, you know, having guns pulled on you and, and being pulled over regularly and uh, seeing your family go through it, your mom having to watch it happen, you having to defend yourself without anyone coming to the aid of your civil rights and liberties. It only takes a few of those circumstances to happen to everybody you know to overshadow you know, any positive officer or one or two positive engagements that may have took place during that time. Yeah. So you had a particular engagement with uh, the police when you were, I believe, in college or grad school studying for an exam. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about that experience. So fast forward now, we're in 2009. And so this particular day, I was, um, I had been admitted. I was very proud. I had to graduate school. It was the day before I was going to leave. Uh, my graduate school is on the East Coast, so it took a lot of preparation to make this transition. I was at my childhood home where I grew up with my grandparents. And I got hungry and ordered a pizza. That's what I ordered a pizza. I was washing clothes, just getting ready. I was the only one home. And my pizza was delivered by a younger African-American male around I would assume around 16, 17 years old. And so I ate the pizza, fell asleep. It's pretty good. When I woke up, the pizza delivery driver was still in front of my house. Mm-hmm. So I just stick my head out the window and he just okay. uh, uh-huh. starts, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I like my keys in the car. 
So I just run in the house, grab my shoes, and I run out to try to help the guy. He's got a hanger. He's trying to work through his Toyota Corolla. If you can remember probably what your first car might have been like, we're trying to get in. Uh, so just a visual, he's got on this Skyline Pizza t-shirt. He has the pizza delivery red heater warmer on top of the car. Uh, you can see the keys in the car. Uh-huh. Um, and while we're, I'm out there maybe five minutes and two or three cop cars come up. And so when they come, I'm just knowing that Police are coming to save the day. Thank goodness. I couldn't get in the car. That's what they're here to do, to help people. Now, you need to know that our cars have been broken into for the past year or two prior to that, and we had never seen an officer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But they were here to help, right? So as soon as they arrived, the uh, first officer who got out, he asked me uh, what my name was, and uh, I gave him my first name. I said, Brandon, thanks a lot for coming. This is the car that I'm sure you're here for. Um, and I'll be in the house if you need me. And I started to walk off and he told me to um, step back over to him and that I need to turn around and put my hands behind my back. But they because didn't want they assumed you weren't from around there. They or- assumed I was the burglar. But it doesn't make sense if I'm robbing a car not to be classist, right? But why am I breaking in the Toyota Corolla from that's almost 10 years old? And we got a Cadillac right here sitting on Chrome. We got another one in the in the, in the garage. So every so the whole premise, right? So that's when you know bias is rearing its face because all they see is criminal. But by this time, we've had so many folks who have died in these same types of circumstances, and I know enough to know that it's not a game. And so I uh, looked him square in the eye and let him know from this moment forward that he needs to do everything by the book. And then I turned around and I submitted to his, to his uh, request, and he cuffed me and put me in the car. Yeah. Wow. When you looked him in the eye and told him he needed to do everything by the books, is that literally what you said? Uh, verbatim. Because I've been through this so many times. So you're sitting mm-hmm. in the back of police car, handcuffed. Yes. Uh, what happens then? There's, a, there's, there's just a period of time where you're just stunned. You can't really hear. You can't really see. You can't really speak because you're sitting in front of your own house in handcuffs. And it wasn't until a neighbor came up the road after a while, like, what are y'all doing? Why is he in the back of the seat, back of the car? Oh, you know him? What do you mean? Do, do we know him? Immediately, as soon as he did that, the officers realized then that they were wrong, had not believed me or the other young man, had ignored all the other signs, the pizza box, the pizza shirt, the keys in the car, ignored all of the different signs. And at uh, to make a long story short, we sued. Oakland chose to support the officers and deny my claim. So there, it, we embarked upon a three-year mission with the local grassroots organizations. At that time, I didn't want the officers. I wanted the entire Internal Affairs Department. And the ACLU of Northern California supported my claim that Internal Affairs had demonstrated that they weren't competent enough to review our complaints as uh, civilians and that we should have a civilian oversight of police. We won. And a lot of things have gotten better since then. Wow. Okay. Wow. You just uh, took us all away from, you know, your experience in a cop car to completely overhauling the uh, internal affairs process within the city of Oakland. And I'm just happy to be a, a participant and an extension of those who came before me and kind of paved the way and you know, really, you know, mm-hmm. and, and paid those prices. And, you know, I went through all of this, right? But I didn't get shot. I didn't break bones. And there are folks that I know who did. 
And so I always give praise and honor back to them. Yeah. So you now run these like deeply personal workshops um, for police and community members. I was wondering what was going on in your head and your heart when you decided that you wanted to work with the police in this very human (laughs) way after having gone through these experiences? That is an incredible question because there's obviously something behind that, right? To make that transition. (sighs) Definitely. Um, you know, the time period that we spoke about in regards to the um, case study that I endured in front of my home before going to graduate school, um, this is now, you know, between 2009 and 2013 is that whole process I'm dealing with all of that. 2014, 2015, 2016, you start to have Michael Brown getting killed by a police officer mm-hmm. in St. Louis. Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, these things began to start to happening all around on camera, though. What we see on camera is the experiences that we knew all too well growing up in Oakland. And then what motivated me personally into action and to writing my book and to doing these workshops was Sandra Bland, the case of Sandra Bland, who was pulled over uh, on uh, in Texas and subsequently died in police custody. And she being a woman, black woman, and my, she was pulled over very close to Prairie View A&M University, where my grandfather had attended a historically black college university, where my cousins, this is where my people, this is where we're from. Mm-hmm. I had driven this same highway. So that was a turning point for me. And I remember coming home. I was, again, a new father. And I told my wife, I said, honey, I think it's time for me to get some protection. I think it's time. I've never owned a gun Uh in my life. Uh Um, My wife let me get it all out. And she said, uh, we met in graduate school. And and so I studied, uh, uh, I earned a master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. She earned a master's in peace building, conflict transformation. Okay. And so after I finished, she said, I'm a peace builder. How can you bring a gun into my home? And she stopped me in my tracks. And she, it, it, her response to me compelled me to find a way to participate in the conversation of law enforcement and community without a weapon or without a gun as a weapon. And that's where what is natural began to emerge. And what is natural is I'm an educator. My background is education. And so that's where the energy transformed to from how do I protect myself with a gun to how do I pr- protect my community with weapons that are at my disposal? And education is one of them. And so what became born out of these conversations is what culminated into the curriculum, which was a training curriculum, which was community conscious policing. So I started with a little bit, built on that, built on that, built on that. And now I'm at a place to where, you know, it's my full-time mission. It's my full-time mission. So uh, community conscious policing, can you step back and define what you mean by that? Definitely. Community conscious policing, if I was just to break it down, let's look at each word. Community, the sense of belongingness amongst the group. Conscious is that space where a shift is able to take place 
It's that space where we are motivated to do what's right. And policing, we look at policing as an agreement between law enforcement and those that they serve. And we got to find a way to coexist. And so that's where the ideas of community building came into play, where we can have officers speaking directly with communities that they serve, getting feedback directly from the community they serve without filters. And that's where the concept was born. Wow. So it, it feels to me like there was this this evolution in what you're talking about. You, you know, as a kid, you've got these experiences that getting the gun drawn on you, being held or detained for hours. Um, and then that transforms to you, you know, taking the police to court. And then all this national attention, you know, all these national deaths happen, these, you know, some would say murders. Um, and uh, you you have this pivot turning point where you're saying, I'm either going to dive deeper into protecting myself and get it, or protecting my family with a gun, or I'm going to reach out into my community and figure out how to actually make us be able to work together. It was a pivotal moment in time. And mm-hmm. I think I made the right decision. Um, and I don't want to get too technical, but if you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what we mm-hmm. all need to just be sustained and to will live a decent, hopefully a happy life. But at the top is self-actualization, that if you've gone and you have access to all of this underneath, then you will reach a a point where you'll be able to self-actualize maybe your purpose in life or whatever that is. And what's interesting is it's been adapted in recent years to a point, to include a point above self-actualization, which is teaching others. Uh So when you're able to keep yourself safe and you find some accountability for yourself, that's the next step. Yeah. And you said a key word there, just kind of about, you know, purpose. And I want to come back to that Mm -hmm. because we talk a lot about that on the show. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if before we get into that, you now have an organization. Yes. It's called Training for Transformation. It is. It is. Um, And so, and you do workshops Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. community members Mm -hmm. and the police. And Mm so say I'm a cop coming to one of these workshops. What, what happens? What, how do, how do I prepare myself? What, what am I going to expect and what, what do we do? One thing that's unique is that we ask law enforcement that they arrive not in uniform and that their guns be concealed. So if you're just looking at the room as an observing officer, you shouldn't be able to tell who is quote unquote community and who is quote unquote law enforcement. And we usually begin the session breaking bread together, not on anything training or anything, just breaking bread together. The next phase is usually um, confronting some biases. So there might be an activity, for example, where uh, all of us will come in and we will uh, um, try to think of uh, stereotypes around certain themes, law enforcement, immigrants, Black people. And we'll share all of these, dump all of our stereotypes that we all know or have heard about these certain groups. So, so just as an example, you might, you're, you're saying that kind of you put up on the wall, you know, African-American male, and then everybody starts talking about the stereotypes that they have. Lazy, uneducated, da-da-da-da-da. and then the next list, the next list. So there'll be several groups on each poster board. We'll put them up around the room. We'll all be able to kind of go around and get a gallery walk of what all came out. And then when we do that silent walk and you get to see all of those on the page, so it could be a painful process, even if it's not you on that board or someone, your demographic. It's still painful to hear what is said about or assumed about folks. And we ought to reflect, well, how did these stereotypes get into this room? 
and the moral of the story is that we 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 the participants brought these stereotypes in the room. Now we may not believe the stereotypes, we may not agree with the stereotypes, we might not have created them, but they're in there because if they weren't in there, we wouldn't be able to see them plastered around our wall today. There wasn't some racist that came in here while we were using the bathroom and wrote all of these stereotypes on the wall. Mm-hmm. It was it was the community. It was us. Yeah. It was us. Yeah. Okay. So it can be a difficult experience in seeing it, but in some ways it connects you to the different folks in the room and everybody sees the challenges of the perceptions that they have going up. And we all confront them a certain way. And so by the end, it's been our experience that we come back to this sense of belonging that, wow, we all have a vested interest in this community. That's one way that you see folks connecting like, wow, you're law enforcement, but I'm a community member. But man, we resonate with these experiences, though. Yeah. This is a place that we can build from. What I'm hearing in that is that the transformation you're looking to see, you know, is community conscious policing, but it's also this concept of connection and belonging and that healing effectively between the groups of people who previously didn't connect with each other. Exactly. So all of this work for myself, this journey Mm -hmm. that began with just survival has now morphed into really focusing on this healing space. And so that preventative path that my wife was encouraging me to find was helping me to realize that the more I can help people heal, the more lives we can save. Meaning if, and keep in context, I can do this in this space because I have found accountability. I have won a lawsuit. If I hadn't had these quote unquote wins in my life, I would not be able to be at this stage and see past my own survival. So that needs to be, uh, I like to I would like to share that part um, because there's a lot of people that are still stuck in the pain and stuck in the struggle and stuck in the hurt. What do you What do you say to people who are still stuck in that place of hurt? Um, how How do you do you see other ways for people, you know, other than like winning a lawsuit, where they can get to the point where yes, I'm actually ready to engage and um, heal the divide between law enforcement and the communities they serve. Yeah, so this actually moved into what we're offering now, another round of workshops that we offer that are racism, trauma, and healing workshops. Because what we found in bringing the law enforcement and community together was the need for healing Mm -hmm. and the role of healing. What is the connection between my healing as a survivor of racial profiling and police misconduct? Mm -hmm. And the role of healing with an officer who has dealt with whatever trauma comes with their respective lives and work and what impact our healing has on one another. You know, when you really let yourself imagine the potential of this work, what is your biggest hope and dream for what it can do? It's a great question. My twin daughters were born June 2nd, 2015. So this is right in the middle when all of this stuff is going on. Big part of my motivation Um, I was able to, I was fortunate to be able to stay home with my daughters um, for the first year while, you know, to bring them up. And while I was home with them is when I started writing my book. I went and brought in recommendations from around the country in terms of best practices, whether it's mental health responses, uh, violence reduction, um, public public health responses uh, to law enforcement, you name it, it's in there. And 
that's what I tried to put together. So my goals, hopefully we get to see uh, our educational resource in um, high schools, community colleges, universities. You might have some entry-level cadets that are doing what they need to do to become police officers. And so this class might be a part of their credentials so they can come and, mm-hmm. and we can have these opinions and perspectives through a semester or through a year or through a credential type program, the triumphs that could come from a prolonged engagement, I think could be uh, unprecedented. Do you consider this work to be your life purpose now? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's an easy answer. It's one I can't say that I would, this is going to sound crazy. I can't say I would wish it on anybody. <laughs> It's a hell of a purpose to be called, but yes, uh, it's it's abundantly clear. It's abundantly clear that this, at least at this time in my life, uh, I feel as though this is exactly what I'm called to be doing. So you're, the fact that you were able to, A, have these experiences, B, survive them, and C, translate them into something that gives you meaning, uh, makes you feel like that's your purpose. Absolutely. And I think that it's not due to my own merits. I believe that it's because of this purpose and calling that I've been preserved through some of these experiences Mm -hmm. because of this calling and this work that needs to be done and that I'm fortunate to be one called to do it. I mean, there's a lot of black men who do well and great things who die young or before me. My dad died at 37. I'm 38. I mean, so I believe that because I've connected to this community, conscious policing, training for transformation, this specific work, I believe it's a reason why I've been preserved to continue, you know, yeah, absolutely. Are there moments in this work where you feel like you're just running into a wall and not seeing the change you hope to? Or, you know, how do you keep hope when there are so many horror stories in the news of unarmed black men getting killed by the police? Thank you for asking that. I have been fortunate that I haven't been shot by a police officer. I haven't been beat up. I haven't been bitten by a police dog because I know folks that have, right? What people saw around the country 2014, 15, and 16 been going down where I'm from since I've been around. It's just everybody else is catching up to what it was really like. We have always found a way to thrive under pressure. We've been doing this a long time. So under no matter what the circumstances are, we've been able to tap into cultural strengths that preceded the United States of America that we still utilize Mm -hmm. to overcome the conditions that we're presented with. So no, I don't get discouraged. My story, if I I sat down and we went through every time I've been stopped and why Mm -hmm. I was stopped and how I was stopped and what I had to do to overcome, that would have crushed the spirit. So I knew before I even started or had a topic or a title that my approach had to be almost like alchemy, it had to take all of this bad darkness. Mm-hmm. But what had to come out was a burst of light. Mm-hmm. So what motivates me is my own healing. This work is healing my own wounds. Mm-hmm. So nobody had to ask me to write this book. Nobody told me that this book was needed. Nobody told me to start training for transformation. Nobody. But I knew deep down somewhere that there was something that was needed here. And I felt like I was the only one on this planet who could deliver it. Yeah. You've got, you know, three kids. Mm. And uh, how do you navigate teaching them to be aware of the current reality of, you know, being 
uh, person of color, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a place where there still is racial profiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you, you know, with your vision, how do you reconcile that with your vision of how you want community conscious policing to be? Mm. That's a fantastic question. <clears throat> My vision of uh, training for transformation and community conscious policing, it is in alignment and coincides with the philosophy that I bring my kids up with. So what I mean by that is my son is six and I'm just going to be honest. You know, there's a standing rule in my house that we don't call the police for any reason. Really? Yeah. You know, at, at least if there's, you know, you, there, this is the number, you know, this number you can call for, you can access fire department, you can mm-hmm. access ambulances. Mm-hmm. But if there's a safety issue, that's something I'm going to have to deal with. So, so the police are are not available to your son for protection. Not in the way. So, of course, you know, if they called, they would. If he called, they would respond. But as far as how I raise my son, it's more from a space of self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. Because even nowadays, it might be okay for him, but what are they going to do when they see me? And then also, what happens when my son starts to get closer to 14, 15, 16? So it's more of not necessarily these are the bad guys, more of this is a, there's a self-efficacy and a self-empowerment that I want you to have around yourself. And if there's something that you can take care of within yourself, then we're going to train for you to be able to do that. Yeah. It, it, it sounds to me almost like you're like, as you describe that, you've got a vision of how you want, you know, the law enforcement to be, but they're not there yet. And so you have to train your son to the current reality well, you work towards the vision you've got. You got it, right? Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I don't speak negatively about police around my son. Mm. You won't catch me in my house, all oh, these cops and he's guilty and ain't do this. And yeah. I don't try to I don't try to paint his narrative for him. Um, so it's a balance and it's a daily balance. You know, I'm trying to figure this thing out, honestly, yeah. as I go. Uh you know, what about the person who is just relatively unimpacted by this, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. me, I'm a white middle-class male. You know, I grew up thinking the police are there to serve and protect me. That's by and large been my experience. I, I would call the police and train my son to call the police if there was, you know, something wrong, burglar in the house, something like that. Um, but, you know, what? how might I be a better ally for those who are trying to figure this out. Definitely. You know, if I was to use Dr. Martin Luther King, at least my understanding of his work, because mm-hmm. he's so complex, but at least my understanding of his work, um, he didn't spend, and it seemed like he spent a whole lot of time on um, his early adopters, the people who just got it out the gate. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, of course he engaged and brought them with him, but that wasn't his focus. And where his time was spent. And he also didn't go and look at the, you know, Ku Klux Klan and the most racist of the racist in terms of who he needed to change to get on board and to do what he needed to do, at least for a good part of his early part of his career, at least. He focused on that majority in the middle. Mm -hmm. Those who had access to some level of privilege. Those folks who are not at the protest, but I'm not trying to hang you either. I'm just going to work and trying to bring my kids home from school. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Right. Right. Yeah. So I 
kind of bring that same example of I don't spend time on those who are unable or, or unwilling to shift. Mm-hmm. That's not mine. I don't need converts. There are folks who, because they know me, they don't need to read the book. Mm-hmm. They're gonna rock with me. They gonna if this is what you think, Brandon. Let's go. Yeah. Right. Right. They they've heard your stories. And they've been there with me, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, uh, so it's certainly appreciated, but they understand that that's not where my time and space is going to be spent and focused. And I think this uh, book is a tool to help those who are just kind of coming into their consciousness in this area to get some education or some understanding before engaging or how to engage. And if a lot of times... I think we make work a lot more complicated than it is. Just coming into the awareness that there are experiences outside of yours is a huge step, I believe. To just say, my experience has been this with police. And honestly, I would teach this to my son. But to have time and space that allows room for my experience with the mm-hmm. same folks, mm-hmm. right? I would say, just start where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and find these small moments when you can identify what your privilege is. And if you see a time when you can use that privilege on behalf of someone who doesn't have it, execute it, do okay. it. So these are the small things that that ripple yeah. and really can make a significant impact in the lives of folks of color. When you're talking about actually you know, having those conversations or saying that thing, it's, it's hard. You know, it seems really easy, but, um, and I had a coworker who... You know, was was telling me a story, uh, and started using the N word, and I was like, <laughs> I he was my superior, you know, a lot older than me, um, and I had to tell him that makes me feel really uncomfortable for you to be saying that, and uh, it's you know, so I would encourage I'm hearing your message, and I'm just going to acknowledge that that's uh, it's so easy, it's such mm-hmm. a small thing to do, mm-hmm. it's hard to do, it's mm-hmm. got to get done. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. And I appreciate you, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the things to interrupt. Mm-hmm. So even as a black man, for example, doing research on this, it's difficult to find out. I can tell you how many black men were killed by police. I can't tell you exactly how many non-binary transgender people were killed by police. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you exactly how many Native women were killed by police, even though that they're killed at the highest ratio and they have more missing people. So even within the movement, mm-hmm. there's bias. And so even myself... As a quote unquote leader, the best thing I can do is assess where is my privilege? Because I bring some to the table too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about um, self efficacy. You know, what can you do? And I think that example that you gave um, is a very important one, right? You didn't get a, uh, you know, no cameras came out to congratulate you for in, in equity and give you flowers mm-hmm. and, yeah. right? It's a, it's a difficult, challenging thing. I think we can get. Um, distracted with all of the big measures that are going to fix and solve these problems that we all experience. That's one part of it. Mm -hmm. But there's also this interpersonal part, right? And so after my first workshop that I took away, we we did the structural commitments, what the law enforcement agreed to do as an organization, but then what do we agree to do as individuals? And my takeaway after my first one was when it was appropriate and when I felt safe, I would wave or say hello to an officer. Just that alone, right, is how I got to now being able to have a conversation with an officer. But it started with a wave. It started with a personal tiny commitment. And so that's why I always like to bring all the other stuff is necessary to do all the stuff that I've done in this book. Mm -hmm. 
let's not forget the interpersonal things that are the little ripples, right? That yeah. kind of take us to where we want to go. Yeah. <clears throat> if this work really resonated with somebody and they wanted to be a part of the solution, mm-hmm. you know, how could they get you know, more deeply involved? Great question. One of the reasons why I wrote my book was to kind of take all of this information out of my head mm-hmm. um, and put it somewhere that was accessible. That's first. Uh, I tried to also make the book easily digestible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's also action-packed where there's educational resources, but it's provided within my personal story. Mm-hmm. And there's a personal context to it as versus just a stale textbook in a vacuum. But I would say start with the book because whatever you think you want to do or you think you want to know, at the very least, you'll have the latest up-to-date relevant information, at least from a engaged community perspective, that will inform what you want to talk about or will inform what you want to do. Last question for you. Um, you, uh, you mentioned a couple of pretty powerful things about sort of your process of, of, you know, finding purpose, you know, I, I like a couple things I heard were, um, one, you know, going, transitioning from that, that space of, you know, doing this kind of for yourself, for maybe for your family to doing this, you know, for the broader community and healing. The other thing I heard, um, you know, you kind of talked about this idea of like, you had all this stuff that was dark mm-hmm. and you're going to bring it all in mm-hmm. and shoot back out some light. Yes. Yes. Um, I've, I really like that imagery, but um, <clears throat> what other advice, you know, do you have for listeners who are trying to live a meaningful life for, you know, find, find purpose themselves? I will begin by saying, are you sure? The path that I feel as though I've been called upon is not easy. You know, there was a time in my life when I was ignorant and blissful. I went to school, went to a couple classes. I enjoyed life. You know, are you sure you want your purpose? Are you sure you want to tap in and get more meaning? Because if so, it doesn't come with just, um, it's going to take some hard work. I've had some struggles along the way. I was having struggles in school and just in life. And I had a, a pastor, he invited me to, out to eat and he said, Brandon, I know your family. And I know where your family come from, and I know our people, and I know what's been invested in you. And he said, you don't have the strength to fight against all that's been invested in you. You're not strong enough to go against what we've put in you. The easiest thing that you could do is step into the light and be great. So that's what I would offer. If one is searching for more meaning or more purpose, it comes with um, hard work. And uh, I think the core of it is just a conviction. So I've said quite a bit, but I think the last thing is if you see that there's a gap, you see that there's something around you that's not being filled, um, that others don't see, and you try to explain it to people and they don't quite get it, step in and fill it. Well said, Brandon Lee. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ignited with Meaning and this interview with Brandon Lee. Let me just first say that I'd like to exonerate my current colleagues. The incident I spoke to about having to address a racial slur happened a long time ago at a different company. And thankfully, I haven't heard anyone talk like that in a long time. You know, one of the things that Brandon said at the end of this interview really resonated with me, that living your purpose is hard. But 
Somehow, it's also the easiest path. And I personally feel that to be true. Living my purpose requires a lot of tenacity. But somehow, going against that is actually more difficult. And to be anything less than living at my potential makes me feel anxious, like I'm letting my moment slip away. And that's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling for me to sit with. I think that's what Brandon's saying for himself too, but coming from a different angle. For him, the contrast of everything that his community has invested in him, his natural gifts, and this injustice around law enforcement makes turning away from that more painful than turning towards it. So what is that thing for you? What is your dream for making the world a better place? And what's keeping you from making it come true? It might be hard, but Brandon and I have found that not doing it is harder. So please share this episode with a friend and remember to step into the light. 